Hello everyone, you're listening to UCC 98.3 FM, my name is Matthew, and you're listening to Research Rants. Uh, This is the inaugural show of the programme, being run by myself, your UCC Students' Union postgraduate representative. Um, And basically this is a show that I'm going to be running weekly um, at this time where I'm going to be interviewing uh, postgraduate taught and research students all about what they're up to in their research or like what topics they come across in their studies that they find interesting. Um, because a lot of time these kind of things just kind of get lost in, in course files and whatnot, and it doesn't really kind of get out there to the public. Um, and so I hope with this, I can help kind of bring those stories out there a bit more. Um, so without further ado, on today's show, I'm joined by Richard Scriven. Hello, Richard. Hello, Matthew. Hello. Um, so, Richard, you're studying an LNM, so Master's in Human Rights Law here in UCC, and the topic you're interested in most is disability rights. So, I suppose, can you give me just what's your degree in a nutshell and why that topic in particular? Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. Delighted to be your uh, first guest no as well. So I suppose international um, human rights is, uh, it's it's an area that a lot of people would be aware of because mm-hmm. uh, if something comes up in conversation, you're aware that you have human rights and that different people are. And I suppose particularly at the moment because um, unfortunately of conflicts mm-hmm. um, uh, ongoing, um, people are referring an awful lot to things like international law, international humanitarian law. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, masters in law, focusing on human rights gives students the space to examine what that actually means. Mm-hmm. So it gives you the space to look at things like international treaties, like something quite well known to people would be the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, mm-hmm. and saying, what does that actually mean in practice? Mm-hmm. Because over, you know, for decades now, we've had these rights, but we know that they are not being fulfilled. Yes, And it uh, allows the space for people to examine those. And I suppose what's, what's really engaging around it is is that there's two parts to it is that you've got lecturers that are very well informed with that so I suppose we're quite lucky here in the School of Law is that you have lecturers that are themselves practitioners hmm. um, so for example uh, Dr. Um, uh, Samantha Williams who um, is the Programme Director uh, for the LLL in, in Human Rights is uh, runs um, runs a Traveller Rights Centre here and is very focused on um, providing practical um, support for travellers and other people in marginalised groups exper- um, experiencing discrimination. Mm-hmm. So there's that link between theory and practice. And then the other real strength of the programme is that you've got people from different um, parts of the world who are coming here. It's a very international programme. Um, so I have colleagues from China, I have colleagues from uh, Tanzania, Sierra Leone, Uganda, and they're coming. And an awful lot of people are actually further on in their careers. So you've got people who are practising lawyers, mm-hmm. uh, magistrates, and they're bringing practical experience. And it allows you to explore those themes which are which we all know are important, but you put together a framework framework for it mm. um, and then I suppose to specifically for me around disability rights is it's one of the reasons that I undertook the course because um, I suppose is that we, we can look at there's an awful lot of um, marginalised groups in, in, in Ireland and in the world and I suppose for me it's um, disability rights speaks to me as, as a group of people um, who are uh, particularly impacted uh, by inequalities mm. in the world and if we look at things intersectionally it's it's disability but that also interacts with gender that also interacts with socioeconomic um, status and i suppose by by any measure um that you can use um in in ireland in particular um that um disabled people would be one of the more disadvantaged groups Naturally. In society. So like we would know, for example, Ireland has the joint lowest um, employment rate of persons with disabilities in the EU. That's um, shocking. Yeah. You know, and then that that then impacts because people, if people aren't working, 
that means that they don't have their own facilities, mm-hmm. um, which means they're, if you look at um, unemployed people, uh, sorry, um, disabled people mm-hmm. are disproportionately represented in lower socioeconomic groups. Also That's homelessness right. is impacting that. So this is very real impact. So when we're talking about disability rights, it's what's outlined and, and saying, this is, these are what your rights. But then we're looking at what's happening in practice and we're seeing that there's a big um, failure nationally in Ireland between that, between what is actual policy, how is it impacting on individuals and what are their rights? And I suppose I'm very much interested in looking at those intersections, highlighting issues and hopefully pushing uh, for sustainable change. All sounds really inspiring. Um, Yeah, it's great that you mentioned the kind of practical aspect of that because UCC does seem to have a very kind of close link to um, like law practice in Cork and mm-hmm. in around the world. Because um, actually I'm on the uh, teaching and learning committee in the university oh, yeah. and we got shown around this week to the model court room oh, in, yes. in the law yeah, building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and like the setup was like as is would be in a real courtroom. So it seems there's a real kind of adherence to like accuracy and making sure that these students are actually getting a real experience when in their studies. Um so I suppose, is there anything in particular or anyone maybe that kind of inspired you to take this kind of, not career path, but like degree in particular, like, is there any case study or like someone? Yeah, you know? th- there was. And I am, um, I, when I, when I, um, I took up this course, I was, I was working in the political sphere. I was okay. working in, in, in the context of, I was um, supporting a member of the Oireachtas. Mm-hmm. And in, in that, I suppose we were coming across um, cases continually um, around disability mm. and it was just an issue that kept uh, kept coming up mm. and we were seeing it um, manifest in different ways in particular I suppose what you would have is parents and our carers coming for children with disabilities uh, because we are aware of the fact is that there is um, a massive shortage of proper supports for um, children with disabilities mm-hmm. and that comes in uh, both terms of education and the providing of health um, and social care services. Mm. So you would have a situation whereby um, a child um, at, at very young ages, in some cases, will be identified as maybe needs, needing some assessment or types of intervention mm. and that not happening for years in some cases. Mm. And it should be happening for everybody. So if a child is identified as needing an appointment or an assessment with a speech and language therapist, an occupational therapist, a psychologist, um, a nurse, a doctor... Um, we would know that the earlier that happens as an assessment and the earlier that intervention happens, then that young person, that child has much greater chance of outcome. Absolutely. Better and quality of life. Exactly. And, yeah. and impacting on that. And any delay that happening at that, that stage impacts on their quality of life. Mm-hmm. And parents are infinitely aware of that. And we were genuinely like we would be meeting with parents and it would be not unusual for people to be breaking down in an office with this because they are mm-hmm. at the end of their tether, they're engaging and um, trying to engage with services and are meeting this frustration. And then as what happens in Ireland in terms of health and social care, all the times is those with the means go private mm-hmm. and those without are left on very long waiting lists. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's inequality in itself. So then therefore it, that that becomes intersectional. It becomes about who you are, who you know, what your personal capacity is. And I suppose within that, there's uh, there's also a whole group of people, and I, I don't want to make this into who who is who's advantage, who's disadvantage, but a whole group of people in the middle who who through an awful lot of sacrifice get private services for their child because they they want the best outcome for their child. But that doesn't mean they're necessarily. Uh, they don't have those financial capabilities. They sacrifice an awful lot for mm-hmm. that. And that's an indictment of our services. 
it's yeah it's a, it's a failure of the state really yeah like. it is a, absolutely and i suppose it's encountering things like that that i was really that i was really impacted by like this is an area um, that we need need work and then i suppose i would have been specifically um working in around the areas um in Ireland, we uh, we actually one of the things we are doing right is that um, in the Oireachtas there is a standing committee um, that is solely focused on the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability. Mm. It's it's a unique instrument we have and it's very powerful. And what it does is it looks at is how is Ireland implementing this convention, mm-hmm. and so then that's international human rights um, that um, people with disabilities have, and then how is that. Um, manifest in terms of policies, in terms of legislation, in terms of everyday practices in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And that committee allows uh, the space to explore those ideas. Mm-hmm. And then you're coming in week after week with different groups saying, we're being excluded for this reason, these supports aren't here, here's the issues we're encountering. And then I suppose for me, that I very much understood that link between what might be abstract concepts of international human rights mm-hmm. at an international level and then everyday impacts for people. So the interna- the Convention on the Rights of Persons for Disability says you have the right to live independently in the community. Mm. And then you talk to somebody and saying, I can't get my own home. I have to live in a yeah. in an institutional context. I can't get out of my own house because the supports aren't there. There's just an abstraction between what rights they're meant to have and what the reality is. Exactly. Yeah. Unfortunate. So it's that type of thing, I suppose. Animation meets going with like, okay, so if we're if we're saying that things like um, human rights are the key tool which people are recognizing to push for mm-hmm. greater outcomes for people, me myself, I was like a bit like, okay, I want to get more into this. I want to learn that. I want to have the vocabulary. I want to have the skills that would enable me to work and to push for these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Honestly, like all really inspiring stuff so yeah. far. <laughs> Um, so I'm just kind of interested, like, so how long have you been in your degree, I suppose, like couple uh, So what I'm doing, yeah, so I'm doing it part-time. Okay. Um, so I'm, um, because I'm working as well, so I'm You mentioned in, that, yeah. Yeah, so I'm in the second, um, second year of part-time. Okay. Um, so I suppose, um, the, the good part about that is, mm. uh, when you're doing something, um, Hard time is that that you can spread it out and sure anybody I think is anybody in a one year masters at the moment like they're starting the the their second semester this week yeah and they're really feeling it you know like Been you know there. yeah you know but like you're so like it moves so quickly and it I does. think people forget that about um, college life mm-hmm. um so like in in effect you're already you're over a third done through your mm-hmm. masters uh, people will have this semester and then they're into whatever form of thesis dissertation they're doing yeah and that really really moves quickly it does. and you have so much information to assimilate mm-hmm. and then there are certain cases particularly masters I would say is people are um in some cases going into disciplines that they don't have a background with so i'm doing i i i didn't study law previous to this mm-hmm. so there's an awful lot to catch up on yeah, absolutely. and within a one year thing i think it's so fast mm-hmm. i suppose the advantage i have to say is in terms of par- part time is because it's spread over two years i can digest things a little bit more mm-hmm. so now when it comes to this you know i'm in my fourth semester now there's modules i'm doing it's a bit like oh no i remember that i have that grounding i have that more confidence that's coming um, with that, um, so I think that that that's helping me in in my trajectory. But that's that's also where I am in life, um, yeah. as well. And different people will be coming from um, from different uh, places. So I suppose it, at least for me, I'm seeing that as an advantage. <laughs> um, yeah, like law really does seem like an area that you do kind of need that 
like time to yourself to actually like get immersed in the literature and look at case studies because um I have I do an IP law module with my masters. Oh right, and okay, yeah. Had to write an essay on on some IP stuff with pharmaceuticals <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. over Christmas. It ate up my entire holiday. <laughs> I have to imagine so. I yeah, loved yeah. Every minute of it, but it yeah. took so long to find like relevant case studies to find yes. like what the like EU legislation was for like all these different things yeah. like. There's a lot out there and it takes a lot to wrap your head around. Most definitely. So I'm not envious of you at all. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Um, I think we'll take a quick music break for, for now. Um, so let me just get that set up. Thank you. 
everyone, and welcome back to UCC 98.3 FM. You're listening to Research Rants. I'm Matthew, this is Richard, um, and we are talking about human rights law and disability. Um, so... Well, yeah. just uh, oh, cut in with absolutely. the songs. Oh, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yes. So, so Completely you, you, forgot. <laughs> yes. Why are these songs important <laughs> where, to you? You where, told me yeah, to play yeah. these. <laughs> Uh, there was, uh, yeah, the sort of interesting part whereby, like, when you were looking for uh, contributions, you yeah. uh, you asked for four songs, and it's a bit like putting together that playlist. <laughs> you know, it's um, it's back to uh, high fidelity or something like that when you're when you're drinking through these things. So, um, the first one there was uh, Camilla George. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so she's a, a jazz musician um, uh, from Nigeria, um, but particularly prominent in the Luz, uh, London jazz scene at the moment. Very cool. Uh, interesting fusion of sort of African Western music. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, sort of. I, I I quite like jazz. Um, I also find it it's one of those good background mm. um, um, sort of soundtracks for working or whatnot. For sure. Um, but she sort of is good contemporary stuff. It's not too uh, avant garde. It's something that you can yeah, listen no, to, and it sure. is it's very soothing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one was um, American Townland by Interference, which is a song that's practically, you know, 25 years old plus mm. at this stage. Um, but it's it's a nice indie rock one. It's it's always current because it sort of talks around um, sort of inequalities. Huh, it it name checks Palestine, which is particularly relevant at We're the moment. Um, so it's something that you'll be because because it's quite a simple song and it's just a guitar um, bass for that. It's it's you'll 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 hear its song at protests and things ah, like that. Okay, okay. And it is quite melodic as well. So it is just something nice to listen to. It also. Um, uh, featured in the the I think it's either the first or the second other voices album. Oh yes, uh, very good. So uh, so that's always something that's just sort of nice, comforting listening, albeit slightly protesty, which yeah, does link into. It, it kind of reminds me a bit of. Uh, have you ever heard any of uh, Martin Leahy songs? Yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's, it's, it's totally that vibe. Definitely, yeah, yeah, good yeah, soundtrack for yeah, for yeah, any yeah. protest. Yeah, <laughs> onto the more substantial issues. Yes, absolutely. Um, so. Oh, I think we might have an ad break coming up, but we'll see how much we can get through. So okay. I suppose, what do you think are kind of the contemporary issues with disability rights? We'll, we'll just keep it local for now. So like in yeah. Cork and like Ireland. Uh, in, in Ireland, yeah. yeah. And I suppose as well, like I just wanted to say, this is always important with this, is that I, I, I don't want to like feel this is a conversation on behalf of people. Um, like I, I'm not disabled. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm privileged quite in that regard. I'm your sort of, middle-aged white male <laughs> uh, in a degree but it is I suppose is I I, I like that we like there is room for allyship and mm. I, I I would hope that I fall within that sure um, um space and I suppose anything that I'm I'm doing is directly informed by things that are coming out from um in particular where um there's a groups uh, there's a group of organizations that we call this this uh disabled persons organizations in mm-hmm. Ireland and that's a particular car- category of um, organizations that are run by and for disabled people mm. and they are distinct from other organizations that do amazing work but they are service providers right so they're okay. sort of different groups within the, in, in that sphere and I suppose I try to be guided by, by what's saying there and I suppose the main thing that you're, you're looking at in terms of Ireland because it's sort of replicated around the place is that there's a big gap um, around the, the basic services that disabled uh, people need mm. Um to live the type of lives that we all want people to. Sure. And I suppose that comes back to what we call the social understanding of disability, whereby we say that, um, yes, people may have what you call can call impairments, mm. but the disability part comes because society doesn't accommodate people. Yes. So the classic example we use is 
it's, you know, a stair is, is what creates the disability mm. for someone in a wheelchair, not having to be in a wheelchair. Of course. You know, so it's, it's looking at that more generally. So it's saying, look, it's, it's physical infrastructure is the most obvious thing that people can look at, but it's larger mm. things. It's the things around like, um, do we have flexible working environments? Mm. Um, do you have uh, situations whereby for gaining employment, do you recognize somebody that may not have gone through a standard educational path? Mm. Um, do you have a space whereby you are providing um, proper um, remuneration for mm-hmm. carers? Of course. And for people. So there's a whole series of interconnected things that we say, look, this is related to fact and should be the baseline. And this is where a rights point comes um, across as saying people have a right to these things. It's not a gift that is given by a government. It's not some sort of charitable model we all have. Mm -hmm. We all have a right um, to live fulfilling lives. We all have a right to education, Mm -hmm. to health, to work. It's not something we're doing just because we like pitying these people. It's because we see them as 100%. And and part of the discourse around disability is still that. Mm -hmm. And it's not acknowledging the fact is, and sometimes people come from the absolute best point of view, Mm. but it can still be very paternalistic. Yes. It can still be within that fact. So you're saying is that, um, Anybody, disabled people, anybody else mm. um, is entitled to education. Yes. They are entitled to um, to work. Mm-hmm. They are entitled to access health care. They are entitled um, to live independently in the community. Mm. And I suppose it's that's the larger intersection. And then that becomes manifest in things like uh, I mentioned before. There, there's health care as a situation whereby we don't have enough um what we call, um, particularly for younger people, children's uh, disability network teams, mm-hmm. CDNTs, and they are they are spread across the country. They're supposed to be able to assess and provide services um, for children. They are understaffed, mm. and even if they as were fully, all services. as are all services, <laughs> and even if they were fully staffed, they would not be able. There would not be enough people no, to cater for them. So what you have is that we need this, and then that that impacts people's capacity to enter into education and mm-hmm. um, their quality of life overall within it. So there's an assessment that comes down to those basic ideas. Mm. And then another situation, let's say, and this is particularly where my, my research is focused, um, is around the fact is that people still, it's, it's still considered very acceptable that if somebody has a disability, that they are, um, might be in a context of what we might call congregated settings mm. or institutional living. And that's where you're put in a setting whereby you're with a whole lot of other people. Mm. And that's considered in many degrees to be acceptable. Sure. When the fact is that the norm is like, well, you should be living in the community like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And that is sort of a point of tension within that because people need services. And then by clustering people together in these settings, the government is providing some degree of these services, mm. whereas if things were spread out, if you had people in their own homes, that's more home care packages, of course. which were completely o- overstretched as it is. Anybody that ha- has a, a re- an elderly relative will be aware of the fact is that it's really, really hard to get these um, mm. um, 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 services um, within that. And then just, I suppose, one, one example before I think you want to go to your break oh, yeah, there sure. is it, it just made the news earlier this week. It was um, it was a court case that was highlighted by the Children's Law Project. Mm-hmm. So, um you had um, a teenager who had a disability who then would that also resulted in behavioral issues, mm. um, which was challenging um, for everybody mm. involved. And the only place um, that this teenager was being able to be looked after, I'm going to use that verbs internally, um, really loosely, is a room in a hospital that had no natural light. Jesus. And then that teenager, because of a gap in services was kept there for over two months. 
Mm-hmm. And they didn't have natural light. They didn't have access to physical activities. They didn't have access to education. Mm-hmm. And it took a high court case. It took <laughs> the parents having to bring the HSE to the high court oh uh, to get a judicial review for any action within that. And I suppose what, what you're looking at is like that is, it's a situation that's wrong in itself, but it's it, it's symptomatic of a larger system. Yeah, it's not where, isolated. Yeah, it's not. Whereby there aren't the services for this. The family were obviously in a situation where they're very distressed, where there's somebody that has behavioural issues. And you have to acknowledge that that is part of different um, um, conditions that people have, but that we should have robust enough health services and mm-hmm. social care services that they can they can tackle these things in a more mm-hmm. productive way, as opposed to um, having a, a teenager in a room for yeah. uh, two months. Of course. Right. That's a lot to chew on. We'll <laughs> get back yeah. to you right yeah, after yeah. our break. Clóiste na hóscoil a cúrcaigh, nóchach FM. Hi there, my name is Sinead Wolf, and I'm the chairperson of UCC Nightline. Nightline is a free phone, non-judgmental, non-advisory and confidential listening service ran by students for students. The phone lines are open Sunday to Thursday, 9pm to 1am during each term. Our service also has an online chat function if you feel uncomfortable talking on the phone. Nightline is here to listen to any problems that you have, whether it's related to your course, your personal life, or if you just want somebody to talk to. Our phone number is 1800 32 32 42 and can be located on the back of your student card. You can find our website with our messaging service by looking up UCC Nightline. Whatever is on your mind, we are here to listen. Need pointers on the best gigs happening in Cork every week? Listen to Set Guitars to Kill on UCC 98.3 FM for new alternative Irish music every Thursday from 1 to 2 p.m. with your host, Emily Dollery. With the best tunes from post-punk, math rock, 90s alternative, soft boy indie pop and so much more. So tune in to hear chats with local artists, alternative classics and the best upcoming bands from around the country. For updates, follow my Insta at setguitarstokill.ucc. That's Set Guitars to Kill every Thursday on UCC 98.3 FM. Welcome back uh, once again to Research Rants on UCC 98.3 FM. Um, so Richard, kind of, I suppose what I'm kind of curious to now is what specifically do you want your research to kind of contribute? Like, what do you want your thesis to be about? What kind of, uh, what do you want to add to the field as a whole? Yep. And, and thanks for that. And I, 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 I got to go meta there in, in answering that. First of all, is oh, that, yeah, go for that's, it. that's a really important question mm-hmm. because I think, um, that sometimes isn't something that's posed to people. Definitely. And uh, when you go into doing a, a master's or mm. even PhDs or whatever, whereby, well, what is it that you want? And what is it that you want to do? And mm. I think there's sometimes there's this thing whereby there's so much amazing research going on in UCC. We talk to our mm. friends, talk to our colleagues. Of course. And then there's sometimes that it's just kept within the UCC bubble. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit like it could go further or it should be doing further. And I, I think that's a really, really, really good question to ask. And I suppose I, I'm directly related to what, what we were just talking about there in terms of the fact is that um, today in Ireland, um, there's about as much as we can estimate. And these numbers are loose, which is a problem in and of itself. Mm-hmm. There are about 3,500 disabled people who are living in what we would call cons- um, institutional settings in mm-hmm. Ireland. And this is, as I said, this is a model of care that we basically inherited from the Victorian era. Right. You know, that's where you put people <laughs> Not together. Not exactly inspiring. No, 
you know, and there's legacy issues why this has continued in on in Ireland. And but like it's it's still main it's still there and it becomes a default in certain situations and that shouldn't be the situation. Mm. And I suppose what happens then is with the best will in the world, when people are in these situations, what you have is you enter into something that has become very institutionalized. So it becomes regimented. It becomes a situation whereby, let's say, you're provided with meals at a certain time. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you can leave an institution might be sometimes controlled. Mm-hmm. Your movements maybe uh, is it monitored makes it seem somewhat sinister, but it's it's all sort of within sort of the um, the realms of health and safety and things like that. But if you take it, if I was to say to you, or an average student in every day is like, okay, we're going to provide you with accommodation and food and everything, mm-hmm. but you have a curfew, you have to eat our food at this particular time and yeah, there's CCTV everywhere. Well, it's really reminding me is just like nursing home horror stories. Yeah. Like basically treat, not that, you know, like it's kind of a different situation there, but like these are people like in their like adult and like young adult period of their lives for a lot of and they should have the same freedoms that we have. Exactly. Just because they have a disability, they're not being provided. Yes, yeah. and that's literally the point, Matthew. Mm-hmm. And that's literally what it comes down to. And actually, on the on on, on the nursing home things as well is, um, we have um, in Ireland again. These are rough numbers because it's hard to get these numbers. There's at least one thousand three hundred people who are under the age of sixty five mm. who are living in nursing homes um, with a disability because they're because the state hasn't anywhere else for them that's staggering it doesn't it can't provide home services for people to a sufficient level mm-hmm. there aren't any more suitable so what you have is in this case is whereby you have people like people in their 30s 40s who are living with people who are 70 80 90 yeah many of whom have, have dementia and other mm-hmm. features and that becomes their life it's just like uh, it is that's yeah. literally it and I suppose from a legal point of view is we can point to things in the convention on the rights of persons with disability and saying it absolutely breaches this article. Mm-hmm. There, it, it is absolutely definitive. And then I suppose what you have is that the the government, the government have, have acknowledged this. There's been um, a, a strategy for over a decade now to what they call decongregate. Mm-hmm. That is happening way too slowly. Sure. Um, the the is um, people are highlighting this. The other thing that is, is so the government has this policy to stop this happening or to get people out into what we call community living. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, people are still going into that system. So they're getting people out at an incredibly slow rate, but then they're still adding to the problem. So you've got more people going in than are coming out. Um, and again, it comes down to, again, to resources and a commitment around this because, yeah, for for somebody um, with particular needs to maybe live a more full independent life, you might need something like a personal assistant. Sure. Somebody to be with you, to train with you, to help you and um, get through life and things like that. And that should be a norm. Mm. It shouldn't be something that somebody has to fight for, which people have to do in most situations Mm -hmm. um, currently. And it should be just something that we consider this is part of our society. This is how we value people. This is how we value people participating. Mm. And with the uh, addition of um, something like a a personal assistant, somebody might be able to work, somebody might be able to advocate for themselves. Somebody can be able to contribute to their community in different ways. And it's not just about monetary things. It's about participating in sports. It's about participating in community groups. It's just being part of a community rather than being isolated. Mm. So I suppose... For me, it's that intersection whereby in the abstract um, sense, you have the Convention on Rights of Persons with Disability that says you are entitled to live in the community. You should not be deprived of your liberty. You have the right to decide what you want to do for your own life. Mm-hmm. And then we're looking at concrete examples we have in Ireland here whereby that is not being fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And I suppose my research from coming from a legal point of view is saying, look, is how can we bridge that gap? Mm-hmm. And then looking at the problem and saying is, OK, people have these rights. 
how, why or how are they not being exercised currently? And then what legal mechanisms can people pursue? What policy or legislative changes would be necessary for that to happen? Mm -hmm. So it's using that and it's, it's, it's codifying that to a certain degree because I suppose what you have is did, um, one of the strengths of, of legal based analysis and legal research is, is that you can do something in a very logical and coherent way saying, here's a right and here is the changes that would need to happen to make that right. Mm -hmm. And that you can link those things together and you can bridge those gaps. And then I, I would hope that I would be providing a tool that um, can be used by others, can be used by disabled persons organizations mm -hmm. and other advocates. It would be something that I would be hoping to get it published again to that point, getting it out there. Um, I'm working with Professor Mary Donnelly um, in the School of Law, who's, a, who's an expert in and around these things, um, who's very um, active in this area, both publishing, but also working with statutory bodies. Um, she's very encouraging of this, which is the type of research um, environment I hope that everyone is involved in. You're with an enthusiastic <laughs> um, supervisor who is working with you and believes in the project as much as you do, be whatever it be. <laughs> um, I'm pushing for that and that we really want this to be something that is concrete and that can hopefully contribute to discussions around policy change and mm. um, to the political landscape and looking at things and I think that's if we have a bit more research like that I'm not just saying this because of my own but that if we have something that's focused on real world things and that has something that's beyond something being a body of research in itself of course. I think hopefully we're, we're aiming for it to be something like that yeah like I think any researcher like ultimately wants to see their work being translated into something practical absolutely um, and what you're proposing sounds like really good stuff um, because I suppose like in Ireland, I feel we have a tendency to like when policy doesn't fulfill its duties for like elderly assistants or people with disabilities, there's always a tendency for things to kind of like fall back on the community and yes. particularly families. 100%. And, you know, it's not a bad thing in itself, but I feel like if you have someone in your family with a disability or an elderly relative that it then kind of becomes your responsibility to look after them, which mm -hmm. obviously in infringes on your own life somewhat as well. So like there really should be more state supports for these people and they shouldn't have to rely on other people to live their lives simply as they want. Like, Yep, that's absolutely it. It mm -hmm. is. And, the, and the, then it becomes, it, it, it falls back to if families in particular and we'll, we'll be honest as well, women within families because because that's the way society works. Yes. And within that in communities and, and again, like families and communities are doing amazing work and mm -hmm. we all have obligations to our family members. Of course. But it's that it can be that bit easier, mm -hmm. you know? And then I suppose that's what I like about the clarity of a rights-based framework whereby it's not making judgments around what a family should or shouldn't be doing. It's saying, this is your right. Mm -hmm. This is what the state has signed up to saying that they are going to fulfill mm -hmm. because something like the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability, <laughs> Ireland as a state signed up to it. Yep. Um, giving a sense of the priority is um, <laughs> uh, we signed it but took over a decade to ratify which uh, means that it's you know you sort of do the PR <laughs> bit at the start yeah, but then the actual yeah, implementation yeah. bit um, that took quite a while but look okay we're getting there slowly but um, it's saying right based and you sort of maybe avoid some of that dis distinction around what shouldn't mm. be done saying no this is a right the state said it's going to provide this it should provide this mm. and then family friends community can fill in around things and do extra additional things but it's it's very clear and th there's a certain degree of black and white to it which which should hopefully be a tool to help empower and to um, advocate for these things sure yeah no it's just the forever curse of people writing policy that oh like you did such a great job getting this into the books now what's it actually going to do there you go yeah. um, like it's something we encounter regularly in student unions as well like <laughs> yeah yeah, um, yeah always writing policy both for our own student unions but the national one as well mm -hmm. and like it's such a big push to 
kind of get like this motion passed and and all that, but then it's kind of down to the person who's mandated to actually carry it through and make sure it actually leads to real actionable change and doesn't just sit in a policy book for decades. Yep. Um, fantastic. Okay, we might just go to one more music break and then we'll kind of close out the show and see how we go. Amazing. <laughs> Yeah, kids are being up here. Yeah, me sick and me. 
So that was Disability by the, what was it, the Tanzania Albanian Albanism Collective and Come and Get Your Love by Redbone. So why those two songs, Richard? Yeah, I suppose, look, um, I I, I was talking about Disability, so I I wanted to (laughs) represent that with um, with a group that were talking about it. And I think the the Tanzania Albanism Collective are an interesting group. so al- al- albinism obviously is a it's 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 a condition mm-hmm. um where you have um severely less uh melanin mm-hmm. um um and it then obviously becomes more distinct in in in, in people um of african descent um mm-hmm. so then there's an awful lot of um stigma sure. in 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 different areas around it mm-hmm. um um unfortunately it's something that's still viewed as um, people being cursed or I think I read luck. an article not too long ago recently about I cannot remember where it was but it could have been like somewhere in like South Africa or somewhere but some guy getting like stoned like yep. for having uh, which unfortunately, is insane, yep. like Jesus uh, that's a reality or the uh, that's a, the thing or the, another uh, unfortunately acute horrific example is that um, people's organs oh, are, or oh. parts of the bodies might be harvested um, for medicinal what, purposes, medicinal yeah. purposes. Um, so at the very least, there's degrees of ostracization mm. um, within that, and there's this group who are, are speaking for that. And I suppose what what's good is in terms of the the the, the collective is that they are using music um, as a form of advocacy, as yeah. something to highlight their issues, as something to reinvent themselves and to gain a, a broader audience around that. Mm. So it's, it's it's again it's it's empowering, which we want these things to be. And then on a on a very different note is "Come and Get Your Love" by Redbone, mm, um, classic nineteen uh, seventies track by uh, a group that have um, Mexican American and Native American First Peoples heritage. Oh, okay. um, so the the members uh, were from their communities, and it's actually uh, in in a larger measure sense has it's sort of one of the uh, first songs that was sort of from a group that would be identified as First Peoples, as Native Americans, right, to do okay, very well okay. in a popular sense. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> as we were talking about off-air, the reason I actually uh, included, as well as all those good things, is that it features on um, the soundtrack to Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, that's the connection I made. <laughs> yeah, and rightly so. And to make everybody feel that little bit old, uh, te- uh, Guardians of the Galaxy is out 10 years this summer. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I was 24. Um, I'm getting too old for this. Yeah, I say talking I to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, for this is total a nerd corner here for everybody. Um, the come and get your love, like an awful lot of the um, soundtrack to Guardians is diegetic, and it features yes. at the very start of um, um, of the movie with mm-hmm. Peter Quill listening to it on his yeah, Walkman. Quill, relative, well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I suppose what was interesting is from a, a Marvel point of view is that it it indicated that this movie was going to be slightly different tone to everything Absolutely. else and it was a really useful tool to say this is going to be a little bit more fun <laughs> a little bit more something starting we'll do a fun one yeah, yeah. but this like this was coming after um, which we don't like to talk about Tar- um, Thor The Dark World well, 2 God, yeah. mm-hmm. um, we, we do like to talk about Captain America 2 which was dark yeah, as yeah. well mm-hmm. um, Iron Man 3 you know like yeah. so they, this was this but was a different tone yeah, yeah yeah. Um, um, within that and I suppose Again, you're asking me for four songs. I was like, look, this is the, it's still January, start of a new year. Yeah. It's the first week back of semester. This good seems vibes. like a, a good, mm. yeah, absolutely good vibes. And as you mentioned there as well, like it's, it's, it's just that energetic. It's also something that's uh, very memeable. We'll sing like it's, it's a clip that used on TikTok and Instagram mm. as well. So it sort of has that nice energy. So for sure. um, hopefully something to good to start off your show. Yeah.
Definitely. All right, we're coming up to time now, but just something we want to touch on quickly before we finish up is the kind of concept, I suppose, of like open research access and why it's so important for like accessibility, but just research in general and kind of what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think this this is something that's key because this is something that I, uh, I people, it's coming more onto research agendas that an awful lot of money is spent on research. Yes. But then it suddenly becomes paywalled mm. and an awful lot of that money is public money. Yeah. Which means you and I pay for this research mm-hmm. to be done, but then we can't access it. Yes. And that's wrong. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> you know, as, as a basic level and like the part of the problem is that in, in academic circles whereby you, you are required to publish in what we call peer reviewed mm. um, journals. Absolutely. Well, okay, there's a problem with that system, but that that's what you need to do. Great. But then the average member of the public can't access those. And the only reason you and I can generally access them is because um, UCC Library and UCC as overall pays large subscriptions to publishers. I was going to say that, actually, because I was at a meeting of the Library Advisor Group yesterday and they were showing us the budgets for, I think... Uh, article publishing charges was mm-hmm. what they called it, APCs, and yeah. like just thousands of euros going into that. And um, kind of the argument there against that was that like it's like when these people are getting funded by the government to do, do this research, shouldn't that also kind of curtail part of the funding? Because like why does the library have to pay so much to access this research, which like you said is publicly funded and just locked behind a paywall? Yeah. Um, but yeah, do do we want to then talk about perhaps the the kind of grey aspect of shadow libraries and yeah, like, how and there people is, get and, around yeah, these be, things? Be, because, like, and, and people will, and like this this comes to this is larger things around streaming and mm. music and oh, watching shows and things. The matter is, with research, it, it it's it's more acute. Yes. And the fact is that um, this could be of use to people, mm-hmm. and it's being blocked. Yeah, and there are mechanisms we know because because things are online and you can mm. get around it. <laughs> and if somebody is able to use something, you know, mm-hmm. like there's again, this is from, from like, okay, that there might be legally problematical, but in terms sure. of things, but they like, there is an overall good. And I think there's, there's a debate to be had there around these so. things. Yeah, we won't mention specific sources, no, no, just no, in case no, we no, get no, taken yes. off air. Ah, yeah, 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 no, <laughs> no, no. 98.3 no. FM, not yeah, sponsored yeah, by Shadow yeah, Libraries. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but people, people understand that, and there are workarounds with these things. And I think, but like that, that gets away from the larger point. And I think there is, there's, there's, there's debates going on currently in research I'm that sure. it's not only like the outputs. It's saying, look, research data should be made available as mm, well. Yeah. Because other people, like if you do a massive survey, if you run labs, mm. you know, whatever scientists do, that's not yeah. my thing. But, <laughs> but like, there's so much. But like, there's data there that other people can use. Yep. And I suppose it's that thing as well as like the more open that you have these things, the more possibility for different people to use them, but also people to make connections mm-hmm. that can help address real social, medical and economic issues that we're facing. For sure. And like, if we're creating something, surely you want it to be of the best use possible. Yes. And that you want um, your results to be accessible. You want any publishing you're done to be accessible and you want the data to be accessible that mm-hmm. more people can use it. Because if you're investing, whether you're um, doing a master's, whether you're doing a PhD, whether you're uh, an academic, you're putting so much time and energy in 